Welcome to Earth Matters, bringing you environment and social justice stories. Today's story was produced on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri, the Canberra region, for Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne, Nam, Wurundjeri country, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Beck Horridge. Today on Earth Matters, Avi Mahaningtius and Patrick Anderson, long-term forest campaigners for Indonesia and the world. Here they are. My name is Avi Mahaning Dias. You could just call me Avi. It's easy. I was born in Samarang 56 years ago. I'm very old. Samarang is in central Java. It's a little port city, uh, one of the most tolerant city in Indonesia. Yay. Tolerant in what way? Tolerant in the way of, um, it's a mixed population. I went to school where half of the population, half of the students, they're Chinese. And these are a very famous uh, Islam country, right? And it's, it's, uh, it, it can be quite um, repressive in a way that you have to adjust to the majority, which is Islam. But in my uh, city, we have all kind of festivities. Uh, the way that people live is tolerating each other because, you know, the Chinese might eat pork, that the Muslim will not like it. In other cities, you know, these people will have troubles of public prosecution and that, that doesn't happen in Samara. For me, because Mountain Climbing Club from my high school, that's when I started to think about, okay, this is it. I climb mountain every two weeks. Most Java's mountain I've been climbing. So that's what introduced me closer to the nature. Most uh, girls are not allowed to do it. By their parents. By their parents. But you were. Go parents. I'm Patrick Anderson. I live in Canberra. uh, But I've been working as a forest activist for 40 years. So two-thirds of my life. Uh, I got involved with the Trainee Creek protests in 1979. I was a teenager then uh, and um, found my tribe. So it's been wonderful to work with forest peoples, forest activists around the world. Really, since the mid-80s, I've been working outside of Australia as well as in Australia. And most of my professional work's been outside of Australia, working for forest protection, forest conservation, and to support the struggle of forest peoples. I'm feeling very lucky today to be in the home of Afi Mahaningtias and Patrick Anderson, long-term forest campaigners, working for decades now to save tropical forests in Indonesia and Malaysia specifically, but also in Australia. So my question for Patrick and Afi is, what's happening now on the conservation scene in Indonesia and also the human rights issues that are connected with that? Wow. Big question. So what happened in the conservation, it's, I think it's like many governments in, in the world. Conservation has never been a priority. And if you look at how minuscule the budget for conservation, that is not sufficient. And we always come to the conflict of 
interest when the government and the local communities, where the local communities, the indigenous peoples were there. But it's very little recognition of their roles and their ownership, their knowledge on conserving. However, there's a good news that recently Indonesia uh, Alliance of Indigenous Peoples of the Ar Ar Archipelago, Aman, has just won uh, a Skull Foundation Award, a recognition. How much? Two and a half million US. Two and a half million US. It's a small uh, amount in comparison of like they probably by now representing a good 20 million indigenous peoples within the country. And that that funding will be very useful to help start where the government through the constitutional court have left 10 years ago on the uh, recognition of indigenous peoples the customary forests to be taken out from the state forest. And that's, that's a big, that's a big win. It's a big uh, decision, but it needs to be implemented. So, you know, this is mapping indigenous territories and stuff like that. So things happen, you know, you, there is always uh, hope, I would say, among this, the, the picture of conservation, you know, not moving anywhere. And does that mean those Indigenous owners will then be able to stop logging and other degradation on their land if they want to? If their rights are recognised. So there's now a mechanism in Indonesia whereby the government will recognise Indigenous communities' land rights, and that has now taken place for about 2 million hectares out of 200 million hectares. So we're talking 1% of Indonesia is now recognized as indigenous lands. If you would just do a rough kind of estimate, you could say the vast majority of Indonesia's lands and waters are indigenous territory. Just like in Australia, you could even say 100%. And so having 1% is great, but it's just the beginning. And the government has made it quite difficult for communities to get that recognition. Once they have that recognition, then it does mean that they can start to control what happens on their lands, on their forests. They, yeah. can, they, can, uh, they can stop outside uh, licenses coming in and cutting their forests. And it means they can use their forests yeah, and be recognized for that because in many cases where there is no government recognition, then communities are uh, prosecuted, stigmatized, uh, you know, kicked out of their lands by the state. So that happens in conservation areas. The government draws lines on maps, says, this is conservation, you've got to get out of here. And then in another area, it says, oh, this area is for industrial forestry. Well, you can't really be here, or you can stay here, but don't get in the way. Or, oh, this area is for agribusiness. Now you have to get out of these lands. In each of those cases, the government process that kicks communities off their lands doesn't recognize their rights, and that's been the challenge. So a lot of my work today, my main work, is on supporting communities to have their rights recognised and in forests and non-forests and coastal. But my group is called Forest People's Programme and then, we're, of course, mainly helping you know, forest communities in Indonesia so that they can hang on to their forests, so they can control what happens, 
so that they can have recognition for their rights and so that they can follow their own development aspirations without um, uh, you know, losing out to government, to industry, or, or being persecuted for their activity. Yeah, it's a it's a very very good and I think it's fundamental point that if you have the recognition, you're much more having the confidence to exercise that in terms of organizing, and organizing themselves. Very often, in my experience, have shown that they can fight way with a clear purpose and where and it's probably less fragmentation from the community because that's that's where the crack coming in where you divide and then you know we'll be fighting among ourselves rather than you know looking at the big challenge of uh destruction of the logging and it's 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 also in line with patrick where i'm sitting as the board of the Rainforest Section Network. We're working also in Indonesia, um, Brazil as well, where they are fighting. We're supporting them, not that we are fighting on, on the uh, front line, but we're supporting them on organizing themselves against logging. Supporting forest communities. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think things are going to improve in Brazil now that the government has changed? Yes. There will be hope. It's more hopeful than the previous government where there is no clue on whether they are going to care about the uh, rainforest, the forest, the environment. It's like mostly it's, it sounds very destructive. I think President Lula on the first day, it's very clear that there's no more deforestation from that day on. So, yeah. What happened to the boycott rainforest timber campaign? Are we still boycotting rainforest timber in Australia? Is it still being important? What do we need to be thinking about as consumers here in Australia? I got involved with boycott of rainforest timbers back in the 1980s. And that was at the point that we'd had some success in Australia of getting our rainforest protected. And then we were contacted, my group, Rainforest Information Centre, that I'm, I'm on I'm on the board now. I think I'm the president. And we were contacted by a group in the Solomon Islands saying, hey, great success getting your national park. That's nice. Now we've got your Australian logging companies cutting down our forest. We never agreed to this. We don't want them here. Anything you could do to help us. So the Rainforest Information Centre has been involved with those issues since the mid-1980s, working in solidarity with communities through the tropics and where they wish for that, where they ask for that, saying don't buy timber that comes from this company that's cutting in this place or that you know, is destroying someone's forests. So those campaigns have had a long history. There are still cases where there are boycott campaigns going on. I took the approach in the mid-90s to help create a standard for forestry so that as well as boycotting the bad stuff and not buying bad timber, there was uh, a system where... A company, a business, an individual could say, look, I want, to, I want to use timber. I want to use timber that isn't causing human rights violations, that isn't destroying forests. So it helped to create the Forest Stewardship Council. So that sustainability standard still exists. It has problems, all standards do, both in, in the wording, but more in its implementation. It's more in actually how it's applied. So if you read that standard, it's very clear that the rights of Indigenous peoples, local communities, traditional communities, 
to their lands, to their forests, uh, need to be respected, that any community who's going to be impacted needs to be contacted beforehand and permission requested. And if no permission is given, then the operation shouldn't go ahead. So yeah. the principle's clear. The challenge, of course, with any of these standards is when it's implemented, why are they weak? Why do they break down? Is it the assessment? Is there corruption? Or is it the assessor who doesn't understand the standard? Or is it the complaints mechanism? There are lots of ways in which a good set of rules cannot be implemented well. But I'm, I'm still a member of the Forest Stewardship Council internationally in, in Australia. I'm still actively working uh, to improve the standard and especially its implementation and to help communities to be able to use the mechanism of the FSC if they have complaints about what's happening on their land. So I still firmly believe that um, boycott campaigns are important, they're valuable, they're useful, but we also need to know where is forestry appropriate and how can it be done well so that communities and others can actually have benefit from their forests. So I think both those things are important. If we would look at a particular case, you know, so for the Penan in Sarawak and the boycotts that happened, you know, starting in the 1980s through until now, well, look, most of their forests got logged, very little didn't. And yeah. so you could say, you know, the boycotts failed, that in some ways it just hardened the stance of the Malaysian government being anti-Western uh, and so on. So we could make a tactical, you know, review and say, oh, look, we failed. But I think it's also valuable to look in that broader context. What changed in that broader sense in societies about the values, uh, values of nature, about respecting human rights? and about the creation of you know, standards for sustainability. And in all those regards, we can see there's a positive direction. There's more respect for human rights in regard to conservation and forests now than there has been before. And a case in point, in December last year, so you know, just four months ago, all the governments of the world came together in Montreal and agreed that over the next seven years, they will uh, conserve 30% of their land area and their waters and their oceans and another 30% that they will restore. Now, what's important is all through the language of the agreement, there's reference to the rights of Indigenous peoples and local communities. It says very clearly, you know, we the governments commit to this while respecting and working with Indigenous peoples and local communities. So active partnership and the 30% that's allocated for conservation you know, for that amount, that includes protected areas, national parks, indigenous people's lands, if they want that to be counted as part of the, the national area. You're with Earth Matters, bringing you environment and social justice stories broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network across these First Nations lands that were never ceded. I'm Beck Horridge. I'm with International Forest Campaigners. Avi Maha Ningtias and Patrick Anderson talking about Indonesia and later Avi's interest in slow food fundraising events. And marine, I think it's very important that marine is included and very articulate. Why is that? For me, because I live in a country of 75% is water, 17,000 islands. Where are the zone of where I can go catching my fish? just to simplify it, and where I should conserve. Whereas in very active fishing communities, they do have regulations on when to conserve, 
what to catch you know it's it's all within their um traditional wisdom and that that doesn't have a recognition within the current development planning and implementations within the country so having that and especially now with the with the um social media that everyone knows having that information it's much more accessible and for people to be much more literate about what do i want to save like if the government have or in this case the globe the global government have that decision how does that relate to me how can i use it how uh, how that would impact my life as in a previous no it's like it's very long time to reach the community who will be directly affected by that policy but now it's like shortened in a way i think it's it's very very good in uh, having that information very very fast time efficient and then the other thing with the boycott it cannot stand alone so like in the case of rainforest section network we work with the financiers and from the demand side like who use that companies should not make it worse in terms of destruction and that works so we look at the bank uh, financiers and insurance not to invest on climate destruction in forests Transparency International is an organization that scores nations according to their corruption level Indonesia does not fare well in their ratings ranking 110 out of 180 nations. Transparency International has found that 92% of Indonesian people think that government corruption is a big problem and 30% of Indonesian public service users paid a bribe in the last month. Bear this in mind while Patrick Anderson talks about a new report from the Forest People's Program titled Forest Politics in Indonesia. drivers of deforestation and dispossession you know all societies all governments and systems of governance face the challenge of dealing with corruption corruption and nepotism and uh discrimination um biases and so on in the case of indonesia unfortunately these are deeply embedded inside the system of election politics and the way that government operates and uh i've met with all palm company managers saying look we've signed on to the global charter to to not participate in corruption we can't do business in indonesia unless we pay bribes it's not possible to mm. get concessions because of the whole system and look my ngo forest people's program recently put out a report on this issue the report's called forest politics in indonesia drivers of deforestation and dispossession and this report was written really for the aid community so you know for the governments like Australia and Britain and the US and Norway and so on who provide development assistance to Indonesia but also to the you know to the private philanthropists because we've seen in recent years you know Indonesia is now classified as a middle income country it's not seen as a poor country like Laos or Cambodia or Myanmar and funders are pulling back and we wanted the funders to know that in fact there are big problems in Indonesia that still need their support there 
there is a strong anti-corruption movement, both in government and non-government, but it's under attack from the government's own systems. And there's less political space now than there was a decade ago. The place for people to organize, to criticize, the, the level of transparency, everything on those issues is going backwards. The level of corruption is getting worse. And so we wrote this report to say to the aid community, don't give up on Indonesia now. There's very important support that is needed for the groups inside and outside government who are working for uh, a more just uh, and transparent society. Food. Yeah, it's it's going to be a very big um, contesting interest in the whole entire world between the food and energy, right? In terms of, it's just because I've just read that Half of Indonesian population, they're malnourished. Mm. That's a lot. That's like 50%. So this is the recent um, research by uh, Compass. It's a national media. In December, they release it. And I was, I could not believe this is a country where like, you know, just being in a very stupid uh, way of looking. It's like a lot of fish, a lot of uh Veggies, biodiversities, anything. Why you have a 50% population malnourished? Does malnourished include overweight? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Australia probably has 50% malnourished as well. You know, yeah. but anyway, yes. But in Indonesia's case, it also includes, what is it? A third of the kids are stunted from lack of so uh, nutrients. One every four kids in 20, Indonesia. Oh, 25. Is yeah. Stunting, yeah, and you, you you don't just look at the stunting as the kids physically, but ha the story behind that it means like you involve um, knowledge that it's supposed to the knowledge of food, like you have to nourish yourself. And if our young girls don't know about this, and maybe most of them they don't know also about sex education, but you know we started our population to get. Um, pregnant when they are very young, and probably most of them, they're very addicted to instant noodles because it's the easiest. Like, you know, you're two minutes done, feel yummy, you're, you know, fulfilling. But imagine if you have to do it every day. And But it also tells the story that we don't have time to cook. The knowledge is not there. Time is not there. Um, it's not so much if people can afford or not. We can afford, but if you don't have the knowledge, then you're not. So that's the thing that's been uh, running um, around my head. And it creates anxiety. It's like, well, what's going to happen in 10 years? What's going to happen with this generation who is starting? In 10 years, you know, how, how are they going to look like? Are we, you know, how... How to cut this uh, this chain of uh, uh, irrelevant, being irrelevant or having irrelevant knowledge to how you're going to take care of yourself? Like if you cannot take care of yourself, how are you going to take care of the whole entire earth? You know, you, you have to nourish yourself first to start with. So, so ideas, what are you going to do? Um, one of the ideas is I start, I have started, I started this for 
I don't know Patrick for decades is to reintroduce food to friends and people that I can reach and including the style of eating because the Indonesian's way we know a lot of cultures and tradition that eat communally these are slow food these are food that I found most relevant to uh, the local food, what's the source? It's the easiest way to introduce where your food comes from. And over the time, then I started to do fundraising. So people, you know, it's not directly like you put in a box, but you know, you can go to organizations that you would like, or we can put things together and send to certain organizations. The organizations that I would like, I mean, naturally is where I work with uh, Brain for a Section Network, uh, Sokola Institute that provide access of education to indigenous peoples and marginalized kids. Mm-hmm. What do they do? When the kids, example is the uh, forest kid in South Sumatra, they live inside the national park but as all we know it's all shrinking and these kids also they don't know where to go leaving the forest means like you know you don't guard your forest so the uh, the education system have to come instead of them coming out from the forest so these organizations provide ha- uh, education how to read write count because very often that they got tricked by people who just put a piece of paper and they want to have your signature or uh, thumbprint. thumbprint, you know, just to, oh, you know, we are, we agree that you're going to take the forest and then do something else like plantations and other things. So that's part of what this uh, organization do. Avi Maha Ningtias. You've been listening to Earth Matters. This edition was produced for Radio 3CR in Melbourne on Wiradjuri country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Federation for their generous financial support. If you'd like to listen to or share editions of Earth Matters, you can find this and all the Earth Matters podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. The Earth Matters team will be back next week with more environmental and social justice stories from all over this beautiful blue planet. I'm Beck Horridge. And to take us out, Nathan May with It's Gotta Start Somewhere. You give me many things but you can't replace Things you lost and the things you take We need an upper D, upper D attitude Well, you help me and I help you Cause it's gotta start somewhere Great-grandfather worked on the railway line Woke grandmother up from her dream time New generation shining through There's nothing in the world that